You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of open source premium ingredient all natural supplements designed to help you perform optimal. For more information on bringing optimal cognitive and physical performance into your life, check out naturalstacks.com. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I kind of think in some ways, selfishly, that it should remain a secret because it is such an advantage. Natural Stacks. Start optimizing your mental and physical performance. Optimize yourself. You got to realize that the federal courts of the U.S. have ruled in writing that you as a citizen do not have the right to the food of your choice, even if you grow it yourself. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. If you're watching on video, uh, you see that I am actually in our headquarters here in Austin doing some post-production on this episode, Um, more post-production on this one than than we've ever had to do because this is a special episode. We were on location. We went to uh, see Joel Salatin speak in Highland County, Virginia, got some interviews with people who put on the event. We got some interviews with Joel, and we recorded Joel's speech, which you heard a little preview of uh, just before uh, you heard me talking to you now. So I want to tell you a little bit about what this event was, why it was so cool, and why we're going to share it with you guys. Um, with with the organic and, and especially the grass-fed food movement, uh, I think listeners of, of our show will know that, that there is a growing demand for this type of food. We know that the current industrial agricultural system um, or or, or, uh, orthodoxy, as Joel calls it, is broken. Joel has found a way to bring uh, sustainable and regenerative farming back. And, And not only is he doing that in a way that produces better food for us as a consumer, but it is also done in a way that is more profitable and uh, more sustainable for the farmers. So you're going to hear a lot of that in Joel's talk today. So what this event was all about was it was put on by Stephen Summers Fullerton, and you'll hear interviews with them uh, coming up before Joel speaks. Uh, but the idea was, you know, they were aware that Joel has the solution, quote unquote, uh, and this event is called. Uh, new markets, new demands, new opportunities. And it's a look at, look, Joel has figured out how to do this. How do we teach new places how to do this in in this particular event? We're in Highland County, Virginia. So Joel is talking to farmers and and educating the farmers and the community on uh, how to make changes going forward uh, so that within one or two generations, we can break free from the orthodoxy uh, that we know is broken. So this is going to be a really cool episode. It's not just details about Highland County. Uh, What we're trying to capture here and show you is that 
uh, look, this is how it's being done in one area. Um, let's look at some of the details of what they're doing and, and let's get you some details for what you can do at home, both from Joel and from the community standpoint. Uh, and, and if we all, as you'll hear Joel say, uh, there's a, a, an Eastern or a Chinese saying that if we all sweep our own front porch, uh, you know, then, then the cleanliness problem is gone. So uh, listen to this, enjoy it, take what you can from it and implement it into your life. Um, and, and let's try to help this movement go forward as, as much as we can. So I'm going to stop talking. Let's get to some of the interviews and we'll hear Joel and his uh, expertise. And you guys enjoy this one. Uh, there will be some times where my mic isn't picking up my questions. So you're going to hear me back in the studio um, trying to get you better audio on some of the questions that I ask. Uh, so we'll do our best to, to make it an easy listen from start to finish. Uh, if you're on video, you'll be able to obviously tell when I'm in the studio and not on site. Um, make sure you guys head over to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the video version of this. Tons of links and resources to some of the things that come up in this episode today. Please go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Let us know how much you like the show. And of course, share the Optimal Performance Podcast with anybody you know who will benefit from and enjoy what we're talking about here on the show. All right, let's get to it, guys. All right, we've got Steve Fullerton, one of the event coordinators and promoters. Steve, tell us a little bit about the goals for this event, why Joel's here, and what attendees and listeners can get from this event. Yeah, the, the whole idea behind uh, Joel being here was Highland is a farming community, and it's been a farming community for probably its entire existence. So uh, my wife's family is from here for many generations and been in farming. And, you know, the, the community farms are still here, but there's a lot of young people that are leaving the county um, that we would like to stay and we would like to farm. So one of the alternatives would be to make the, give the community some awareness about the new demands for food uh, in our food system, the types of food like grass-fed beef, pastured pork, and poultry, um, and to just look at that direct-to-consumer option as a new option. Uh, in the food system that we could support through our agriculture. So one of the, the big barriers in the direct connection, uh, whether you're on the consumer end or the farmer end, is, is making that connection. So if right. I'm a consumer, how do I find my local farmer? If I'm a farmer, how do I get to these consumers that have this demand? What would you suggest for people listening to uh, overcome that obstacle? It really would be tough to get direct to consumer from this market because we're so rural. Uh, but with that, it gives us uh, a lot of opportunities, like uh, buying clubs that are within about a 200-mile radius, uh, similar to how Polyface is structured, as well as serving the uh, local uh, resort community, like the Omni Homestead and those people that are here that have farm-to-table restaurants. So, I mean, we have a lot of options now that we have processing here and the animals here and the farmland here. Okay. Speaking of buying clubs, uh, Thrive Market was a sponsor for this event. Yes. Would you like to people uh, will plug drive market a little bit sure they, sure absolutely so, so what was that all about well that was just a we're uh, my wife and i have been members of thrive for probably a couple years uh actually when they just started getting going and uh i'm a big fan of it and it, it fits perfectly really for this community so we also live in bedford county where it's have better access to food but here in highland county Access to food is a challenge. It's about an hour to a major grocery store, maybe an hour and a half. So Thrive, you know, provides a solution for that to be able to get 
healthy food uh, brought to you at your doorstep. Because a lot of people here that are farmers have very little uh, leisure time to drive right. and shop. Right. So there's multiple benefits for it. Right. So everybody in attendance today is getting a free year membership to yeah. Thrive Market, thanks to them. Yeah, I just I called uh, actually to see if Thrive could have an East Coast representative come and speak or whatever, and they were not able to arrange that, but they immediately uh, said, well, how many people do you have there? And we'll send a free one-year membership for every person that's there. That's awesome. So that was a fantastic gift. So if you guys listen, we'll put a link uh, on the blog post of this. Um, so you'll be able to go there, and, and you can go straight to Thrive Market and sign up for your membership there and check them out. So um, we'll, we'll definitely support them for their support and things like this. So. so we lost some audio on some of that, guys. But one of the other things that we really want to mention and make note of uh, as far as a resource for connecting consumers, producers, farmers, uh, is eagerfarmer.com, eager, E-A-G-E-R-F-A-R-M-E-R.com. We'll have that link on the Natural Stacks blog post with the links and resources. Um, But this is actually uh, an initiative started by Joel's daughter, and it's designed to connect farmers to uh, consumers, consumers to farmers, farmers to farm managers, uh, any any element of this movement that involves connecting people and, and you know, networking uh, is happening on that site. So definitely check out eagerfarmer.com as a resource. Uh, so now Steve also wanted to thank some of the local sponsors. One of the core pieces of this event was the ability to have the sponsorships that we got from the local people. So from everyone from local farmers to uh, nonprofit groups that were here, we got a lot of support that made the, uh, the event very successful. We couldn't have done it without them. I think that supports a lot of what Joel said. I mean, his, his biggest tips and some of his biggest advice were to, to do your part, to do what you can right. and for an event or, or any movement to gain momentum. You have to have people buy in. You have to have people contribute. And, uh, you guys have certainly had that community contribution here. Yeah, and that's that's you know one of the reasons we named our company Positive Momentum is you know that started around the health and fitness and uh, nutrition area, and it just seemed to be logical to move it towards the food system area too. So we're trying to create positive momentum. Well, you guys have done a great job today. So great, you continued success with it. Thanks. Thanks for coming. So we are here with Summers, one of the coordinators of this amazing event. You are a local to this area, right? I am. So, I was born and raised here. So it's and it's new markets, new demands, new opportunities. Yeah. Right. And going forward, how would this change the local community, but also you know in other communities if they were to replicate what you guys are doing here? Well, like I said, there's. We have lots of farms uh, here. We've got lots of beautiful land that we find, you know, as I drive down uh, the road, there's just a lot of beautiful land standing idle. And this is this could be um, a way to make it productive again and bring people back into our county. So new demands, of course, is the new emerging, raging demand in uh, grass-fed beef, pasture-raised pork, and eggs, and chickens. And uh, opportunity is that we've got lots and lots of people who want this kind of food. They will drive many, many miles to buy this kind of food, and they want to know their farmer. They want to know who raises their, their food. 
And so that's what I mean by uh, demand and opportunity. If we seize the opportunity, it is all here for us if we can or will. Perfect. All right, so we've got Eric Barth here. Eric is uh, number two or number three in command at Polyface Farms. It uh, goes Joel, Joel's son, and then Eric. So uh, how long have you been at Polyface? Uh, been over just five and a half years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what it's like there and how it differs from the typical farm as we think of it. Mm. Um, well, our goal is basically to work with nature to enhance the way the nature is already set up to work and um, get as much production out of that style and that method as possible. Um, our days start at daybreak typically, uh, working with moving chickens, moving pigs, and everything moves on the farm. Um, chores and responsibilities are divvied out um, over the summer crew, and, and Daniel and I work together to uh, make sure that everything gets done on time, nothing gets missed. Uh, we have uh, a com uh, communal dinner every night uh, with the whole farm. That works there yes, That's yeah, cool. in the summertime. Yeah, okay. uh, when our summer crew is there. And that has to build kind of team and come. Oh, it does. And... It does. Everyone looks forward to everyone looks forward to dinner, especially Friday night because dessert comes out Friday night. Oh, really? So you we enjoy that once a week, <laughs> unless it's a birthday. Is, is, is dessert homemade ice cream from grass-fed? It's milk? it's close to it. Yeah, there's there's there's. Certainly the ice cream's there. We love our chocolate, too. But, yeah. So I think one of the questions that, that a lot of people have, uh, making the transition from kind of the industrial model to mm -hmm. the polyface or mm -hmm. the, the permaculture mm -hmm. symbiosis model, mm -hmm. is you know, can we feed the planet that way? And not only can we feed the planet, but, but can everyone continue to eat meat? Because you hear a lot of, like, like Soylent is popular now, and it's, yes. they're saying the only way that we'll be able to feed the planet is... To, to go to soy, mm -hmm. or uh, like if you've seen Cowspiracy, they talk about everybody needs to become a vegetarian. So can you talk about uh, how, if and then how, yeah. this model can not only feed the planet, but with protein? Mm, yeah, uh, very good question. I think the bigger picture with that is understanding the hidden costs, and Joel talks a lot about this, the hidden cost behind the soy, the, the vegetarian, you know, agenda that we don't uh, factor in, and even the industrial food system, that we don't factor in when you try to alter nature and the way it's supposed to work. Um, you have feedlots, you have confinement houses that take a lot of inputs coming from hundreds of acres of land, grain, and, and, and all that goes into it, and then you have a lot of output with the manure and waste having to go out. If we were to take those animals and let them self-harvest on those hundreds of acres, drop them in the manure right there, fertilize the pastures for more production, for more grass growth, they eat more grain, or eat more grass, they stay in that area and it's not carted hundreds of miles across the state um, and, and across state lines, it, it would really change the way that we eat. And there's certainly uh, you know, a, a very good argument for the cost of trying to do something so monoculture as, as soy and, and, and whatnot, right. not factoring in the machinery, 
yeah. the input it takes to do that. Well, I think you said monoculture right there. At the mm-hmm. end. I mean, as you were going through that, I think that's that's the issue with like, if you're going to do soybean or, or or any of those other vegetarian crops. It's not necessarily the crop itself, but it's that monoculture practice that has the built-in cost that nobody sees. Correct. Okay. Correct. That's often subsidized. You know, <laughs> I mean, that is the American industrial system, right? Yes. So, so yeah. how do you guys, you don't have any government subsidies. Do you? No, sir. No, absolutely not. So talk a little bit about how that impacts getting started. I mean, obviously, you guys yes. have, you have the inertia, the momentum. If somebody yeah. wanted to start something like this, how do you get enough yep. to get rolling? We run a cash flow system. You know, it's it cash comes in and cash is invested and cash goes out, so there's not... Um, you're not in, in debt, um, starting up things. So uh, one thing you really have to understand and kind of come to grips with is, is being patient enough to grow slowly, right. to, to take that first step and be happy with that first step and then take the next step. And as, as, your pro, as pure profits increase, you can move up to it. Um, but we, you know, on the farm, we teach the young people that, and, um, you know, every age group, coming to the farm, teach them how you can get into sustainable agriculture, raising these animals on small scale. It can be movable. It can be low cost because of the technology that we have these days. Our grandparents didn't have that technology, and they weren't able to utilize the electric fencing, the uh, four-wheelers, the different things that we have now, and... So you're you're able to put out a, a $200 field shelter, raise 75 chickens, and and pluck them. I mean, you could even pluck them, scald them in a pot, pluck them by hand, and and make a couple hundred dollars for just three or four hundred dollars worth of input. Right. And if you don't like it, you can stop. You can sell it. If you do like it, that income, the the profit from that one shelter will help you go to two or three the next year or the next time. And it's and it's being patient with the slow process, I think, is, is key, and a lot of people miss it and overrun their headlights, it's, even in a good thing. It's, it's tough to be a farmer if you can't have that slow, uh, appreciate that slow approach to life. Anyway. It is. So, yeah, it is. So two questions for you then, Eric. One, what would be the minimum amount of acreage or land that someone would need to mm. start something like this? Mm. It it greatly depends on what how what you want to start. Okay. You know where where if you just want to start with a few chickens. If you had an acre or two, could you start? Oh, definitely, definitely. And if you had nine or fifteen or twenty acres, you could start with the cattle and yes, and then bring the chicken in behind them. And definitely. Even hogs. Yes, I would say hogs even before cattle. Um, you you could do hogs in a, a smaller area because they can they're omnivores so they do eat grain. They're not needing as much uh, of the grass, although they do eat that as well. They can be put in a smaller area, fed grain, still rotated around to keep things uh, hygienically safe for them and healthy. And you don't need the 10, 15 acres of pasture um, to raise, you know, half a dozen hogs and still do it just like we're doing it right. when we're running a couple hundred. We so, just have more so land. Let's say. Three to four hogs and, mm-hmm. and a pen with chickens. Mm-hmm. Do that on. You'd be pretty pretty comfortably doing that on 
you know, an acre, acre and a half with some woods is, is always nice. Animals need the shade. Right. Um, and it might, it might limit the amount of chickens or, or the hog, um, the amount of hogs you have on the property. But certainly, yeah, an acre and a half, okay. good water, you can really do a lot. And the, the investment to get that started would be? Your, your hog price, um, usually 100 bucks for a young piglet, 90 to 100 bucks. Um, well, you're going to be hopefully retailing it at 1500 1800 yeah, I was expecting it to be a higher price than 100 No, it's it, so about dollars. there. Yeah, like the fencing, right. your battery, your charger, and like I said, the field shelters for our broilers or meat birds are about $200. So, so for $1,000, you could have a setup on an acre to two-acre Oh, definitely. Property. Easily, easily. And, and some... Sweat equity, right? Definitely. Right. I don't think anybody's going to start this without wanting to do some sweat equity. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's fascinating. I had no idea that it would be that the barrier to entry would be that low. It really is. I, I think like it's that. a myth, right. and we're trying. We want to educate, um, especially the younger people that have been told all their lives, farming isn't profitable. They right. see the gold guys getting burned out. Yeah, and we. My grandfather was a farmer. Okay. You know, I appreciate and can value what he put his life towards and right. what he did, and can't fault him for the knowledge that he had and doing it the way he was doing it. Right. The knowledge he had is not what I have now, so I can still appreciate what he was doing, but also understand I can I can get into that flow of life right. a little bit, you know, with less expense than he did. Right, and that's part of what this event is about, is, yes. is educating not only the farmers who farm now, but the next generation, mm -hmm. that it doesn't, the, the, what we know as the broken American industrial model for agriculture doesn't have to continue, sure. and that this is a viable solution to, to change it, because I think, Definitely. we talked about this before we turn on the camera, that I think you and I know, and, and a lot of our listeners know, that the, that that model is broken. That there is a better model. So uh -huh. how do we how do we change this machine that is is almost unstoppable? Yeah. You know, how do we how do we beat Monsanto? Yeah. Right? It is a big machine, and I think that one of the things we have to continue to tell people is it, it's not it's not going to take a 360 overnight. It's going to take one step at a time, it's, and, it's an under, and, and a ground roots movement. Right. It needs to come from like, the bottom if, up. If every generation from now forward adopts a new method, correct, then in, in two generations, it's it's fixed. Correct. Yeah, yeah, very likely. Okay. You're right, Ryan. Sometimes it, it's it can increase probability up to four times compared to the industrial model by cutting out the middleman. If mm. like if you guys yes. sell, yes, I'm sorry, from yeah. producer direct to Correct. Correct. That? Correct. No, the, the retail dollar, more of it goes to the farmer when the farmer's able to be the retailer. So many farmers, um, you know, a lot of people struggle with that person-person um, interaction. Right. And it really takes a team. Not everyone is fit to be the good husband, you know, husbandmen of the farm, of the animals. And talk to an individu individual and sell. Not everybody has Joel's exactly. personality. Exactly. And that's where it takes the team. I mean, we, we have uh, four or five full-time staff members, and then we have our 12-month our apprentices. We have our summer crew. 
everyone's needed right. for the operation, right. and every individual is of equal value. And um, I think I think the the return per investment really does come when you're able to go directly to the consumer and um, not have that that secondary cost of basically just more handling. Right. You know, there is there is, there is increasing profit. There is um, you know, further processing um, sometimes, but the more an individual can direct sale, uh, the more that food dollar he's going to keep, and the more that food dollar impacts him, the greater impact he can have on, on more individuals. Right. So while it's great that more grocery stores, Whole Foods, and, and everybody else is carrying grass-fed meat. Mm-hmm for convenience factor, uh, uh-huh. it's still probably, it's probably cheaper for the consumer. For us, it's cheaper for me to come to you and buy a quarter or a half or even uh-huh. a whole cow. Uh-huh. But it's also more effective for you guys and the movement if, if consumers find a way wherever they are to go direct to a local farm. Definitely, definitely. And knowledge is value. You know, there, there's a lot of value in knowledge. And what we also try to teach is, is what to do with a whole chicken. A lot of people don't know what to do with a whole chicken or just a, a, a raw steak or even a chunk of meat that you can cut up, you know, value add at your home. Right. Um, we just deal with a lot. Of, we deal with a lot of poultry, so that's one thing that we push on a lot. So, so let's say I come to a farmer's market or right. I, I go to Polyface and I walk away with a whole chicken. Yeah. How do I maximize and, and use as much of that as possible? Yeah. Well, um, you're going to be basically trying to... Um, Consume all the meat and, and, and not waste any of it. Um, just yesterday we were cutting up chickens where we take off the legs and thighs, um, we take off the wings, we uh, peel off the breast meat, so it's a boneless, skinless breast. You got tenders, you kind of your high end, you get your friends together for a weekend, you grill those up, those are cool. And then you're left with the carcass, uh, which has some meat on it, but it's got the bone and the fat and all the sinew and such. There's a lot of valuable nutrients That's in that stuff. in That's that carcass. Stuff, right? You know, I, I've I've heard of these uh, broth shops popping up. Mm-hmm. We're we're selling we're selling to um, these small restaurant companies chicken backs after we've taken all the um, nice legs and thighs and and your your chicken wings the all off. Meat. Exactly the muscle meat. Right. We're selling them those backs and necks. And they're turning around and making the stock that we actually buy back to, to resell, um, put together with vegetables and, and every you know all the goodies that go into good good chicken products, and you know nothing is wasted. You co- you cook that down for a slow 24 hours, and that the gelatin and everything in there is just incredible for your health. All right, guys, we are here with Mr. Joel Salatin, the man of the moment, the man of the day. Um, so the theme for, for today is really, we, we know that there is a solution. You have the solution. You're getting that out there. Um, how do we overtake and, and kind of get the, the shift globally that we want to get away from the, the antiquated, uh, the monoculture, the, the infrastructure? Sure. Well, the orthodoxy of our day. Exactly. Right. Um, well, you've heard, you've heard the old story about how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time, and I think sometimes we can actually get uh, deflated and depressed if, if we look too far out there. 
Um, and you know, the Chinese have a, have a saying that if everyone sweeps in front of their own house, the whole world would be clean. Um, and I tend to ascribe to that. You know, Wendell Berry uh, writes about there are no global issues, there are only local ones. And if you solve all your local ones, then all the global ones get solved. And so uh, I actually don't get too, whatever, you know, concerned or, or, or I'm not concerned, but I, I just don't let my energy get siphoned off with the big global stuff because I, 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 I find it too overwhelming, too depressing. And so what I can do, you know, Stephen Covey writes about this in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He says, stay within your sphere of influence. Um, what you can influence, stay within it. And so what I try to do is, is you know, what can I do today? What can I do right now uh, that, w- that will affect you know, where, where I, I, where I want to go, where I want the, the community to go? And, and if, I, if I make that decision right on a community basis, guess what? If I do it and you do it and you do it, and it ultimately drives the global community as well to where it needs to go. Uh, that's really well said from Joel. Now we're going to shift over to his speech and let you hear a little bit of him in his sphere of influence. And you can see how good he is. There's a lot of great information in here from Joel. I have edited out some of the farming technique specific details. Uh, if you want that stuff, the entire audio will be on the blog post at naturalstacks.com. You can actually go in and download that entire thing. For the sake of this podcast, we've edited out some of the, the how-tos for farmers uh, and, and tried to keep it as relevant to our podcast audience as possible. So what I'm going to do is go uh, for about 60 or 70 minutes through um, a slide program. I call it my stem winder uh, that, that essentially shows, uh, tries to get a, a composite of, of what we do. Now, before I do that, it's important to, um, to address the single biggest problem wherever I go to talk. Uh, and I've been to Australia nine times, you know, so I go around the world and talk. And what's interesting is that no matter where I go, uh, I'm the same way. So I'm, I'm my finger's pointing at me. Uh, when I hear a new idea, uh, for some reason, we humans, we're, we're hardwired to find fault. You know, we're hardwired to say, well, it won't work here, you know. And, uh, and, and everywhere I go, you know, it, it won't work here. Um, <clears throat> And so, you know, it, it's either hotter or colder or more rural or more urban or more regulated or, uh, um, mountainous or name your, name your deal. Okay. It's hard to get this. So it's hard to get that. It's hard to do. And the fact is there's no paradise this side of eternity. That's the truth. Every place has its asset and its liability. So there's a silver lining, there's a redeeming place, are you with me, uh, behind every single place. And when I go far away from home and do one of these, you know, and you get, you always have the, you know, the old, you know, the old uh, uh, hermit curmudgeon naysayers, you know, well, that's okay over in Swope, but you know, over in, over here, it just doesn't work that way. The fact is, if I did this presentation for my neighbors in Swope at the end, they would say, well, that's good, but it doesn't work here. That's the truth, okay? So, what I want you to do, I want to just encourage you to shut off the judgment button, shut off the prejudice button, shut off the assumption button, okay? 
and, and just enjoy the ideas and the principles. There's plenty of time you, after today, you can sit around and, 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 and judge them all you want to. Okay. But today, can I ask, just let me tell the story. Enjoy the humor. There will be some and, and, and let it unfold. And, and at the end, you'll see a, a principal approach, I hope, that is, um, that is overall encouraging, doesn't have all the answers, and Highland certainly has nuances of, of, of assets and liabilities that we don't have in Swope, just like New Mexico, all right? But every place, these principles can be adapted, customized, and, and localized for um, you know, for, for, for proper metabolism and assimilation in a community. I've seen it in the most amazingly crazy places in the world. <clears throat> Polyface Farm, the farm of many faces. Dad used to say, we're not just two-faced, uh, we're many-faced. Our family came in 1961, and it was arguably the most eroded land. It was, as I said on the trailer, it was the armpit of the community. We had 16-foot-deep gullies. All the northern hillsides were just gullies like corrugated roofing. Um, I can remember well when the farm would not support about 10 cows or were 100 acres of pasture back then. We've since added another adjoining piece. But um, uh, I remember mowing, mowing hay, and it was so poor that I would lose my place mowing because I couldn't see the grass that was mowed. I- I'm not making this up. Um, fields, you know, 12 acre fields that at that time we would make uh, 50 to 60 bales of hay off of. Today we make 1,500 bales off of. We've never planted a seed or bought a bag of chemical fertilizer in 55 years. Okay? And, and, and so um, these principles that I'm going to share work. Now, it is a farm of bioterrorism. That's what the, you know, the, or, the orthodox industrial food community calls us, um, because they believe that, you know, our chickens are going to commiserate with a red-winged blackbird or, or perish the thought of indigo bunting and take our diseases to the scientific Tyson chicken houses and destroy the planet's food supply, uh, because we're so negligent we don't vaccinate, medicate, adulterate, procrastinate, whatever else that you do with chickens. <laughs> and, and this is the, this is the, the, the juxtaposition. This is the, the, the tension between what I call, uh, for oversimplification, but just bear with me, East and West, okay? Um, most of us in this room are descendants of some sort of a Western mindset, Western perception, which, you know, in Western thought, if you study philosophy, it's the leftover Greco-Roman. I mean, they compartmentalize deity, right, into Zeus and Mercury and, and, and all these gods, right, because, you know, Apollo and all this stuff. So they were all about, about pieces and parts, okay? And, and we are a, we are a, a, a progression of that thought to where we are, you know, essentially we epitomize the Greco-Roman Western reductionist, linear, compartmentalized, systematized, um, pieces-oriented, individualistic, uh, all-about-me kind of thinking. Well, there's an equal approach that comes from the East, which is about holism. We're all connected. We're all relatives. And, and, and the sum is worth more than the parts. And it's all about community and not just about me. And those two ideas um, uh, are in conflict, okay? And so Growing up fairly Western, much of my life I've spent trying to become more Eastern, 
and to appreciate the holism, the connectiveness of all these things, to realize that I am utterly, I can't sail off into some Star Trek, uh, you know, nirvana and sever this, this, this earthy uh, umbilical to my ecological nest. You know, I can't do that. All right. And, and so recognizing our utter dependency on this ecological womb is, is critical, I think, for uh, understanding. So what we're seeing is that there is actually synergy if we can ever, if we can ever appreciate the compartmentalization of the West, which gave us light bulbs and electricity. And I mean, if we were all Easterners, we wouldn't have electric lights. We'd still be sitting around going, Ah, oh, I wonder what spirit is in the lightning, you know, if we were all Easterners. So it's the Westerners that, that you know, that, that said, well, let's make a light bulb. But knowing how many to make and how bright to burn them, that's the East about how we sit in our nest. Are you with me? So, so it, when, we, when we balance those two, that's when we have symbiosis and synergism. The farm is primarily woodland, but what we've done over the years is we have planted a lot of trees and, and built up the, the edge effect. The three great environments are open land, forest land, and riparian, or water. Okay, so riparian, forestal, and open. Those are the three great environments. And the more we can intersect those environments, whether we have a backyard garden or a 100,000-acre Colorado ranch, the more we can intersect those environments, the more diversity of plant and animal life we'll have. Biologists will call this flora and fauna. And the more flora and fauna we can create per acre, the more stability there will be in that acre. So we have purposely put open land into forest land, extending little pastures into forest. That's as valuable, for example, you know, uh, wild turkeys. They don't make babies in deep woods. You know why? Because little poults need 30% protein. And 30% protein doesn't grow in deep woods. There aren't enough bugs. The bugs are grown in the grasses, in the field edges. So to have a good wild turkey or grouse population, you have to have an intersection. And anyone who studied uh, game and wildlife management, we know that most species require two of these. They either need a riparian and open, or open and forest, or forest and riparian. They need two of these environments. And so we have purposely planted trees and cut trees strategically to put those environments in place. But at our most fundamental level, we are grass farmers, and that is our solar collector. Ultimately, we are solar farmers. We're farming the sun. We're taking those sunbeams. Uh, those of you who are wondering where my pigeonhole is right now, I'm suddenly sounding like a very a Wall Street capitalist, you know. I thought this guy was an or, organic, you know, farmer kind of thing. Well, let me just set you at ease. I'm a, I'm a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic, okay? So, so be careful the pigeonhole. One moment I'll sound like a raving communist, and the next moment, you know, I'll sound like a raving capitalist. So... Um, so, so th there is a balance in these things. That's the truth. There is a balance. If you're a logger in here, you're saying, oh my, this is really hokey. You know, this is, this is, I mean, this is like peanuts. What's he doing? Farm tractors running around with saw logs. Well, that is called multiple use equipment. Okay. Now, I'm not going to debate that we can't handle logs as fast as you can with a knuckle boom loader and a skitter. But you know, you'd look pretty funny pulling a hay wagon with a skitter. Okay? And the problem with single-use infrastructure is 
that you have to continue using that infrastructure and you have to use it a lot in order to pay for its replacement value. Think about a big confinement dairy operation. You know, a big confinement dairy operation. What happens is, you know, um, a, 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 let's say a daughter, a 19-year-old, she wants to come back and run the farm, and she goes off to a, to a conference like this. Here's somebody like me. She gets all excited about grass dairying, seasonal grass dairying, like, like we're not going to milk in December and January and February. We're going to dry the cows off and, and, and go on a Caribbean cruise and, and sit around and read for a little while. Um, and, 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 and we're just going to let the cows, you know, graze the grass and they'll fertilize the fields. And we're going to use this, you know, simple little electric fencing here to run them around. And, and he gets all excited. She comes back to the farm at the end of the conference, all excited. And, and grandpa comes, you know, comes out of the, out, out of the barn, right? That's the first person she is. She runs up and says, Grandpa, guess what we could do? We could just, we could just quit filling the silo, quit planting the corn, sell all the equipment, let the cows go out in the, in the pasture, Run them with a little bit of electric fence and a, and a little water line, you know, a little water hose. You know, we can actually run water, you know, uphill and, 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 and they can just graze this and, and we can milk them and, you know, and, 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 and grandpa, you know, he's what? Yeah, wait a minute. Your grandmother and I, we spent our lifetime pouring concrete, bending rebar, trying to beg the banker to loan us enough money to buy this nice green equipment we got sitting around here and and you just gonna you just gonna walk away from it whose child are you that's what happens why because what we think all this single-use infrastructure this depreciable single-use infrastructure that we think is going to free us actually enslaves us because we become so emotionally and economically attached to it that even if it's not profitable, if it's not right, even if it destroys the ecology that we live in, we got to keep running it by golly because it's here and we bought it, right? So I don't apologize for being slow with multiple use equipment. Because I can use that. If I don't want to use it for logs, I can use it for something else. So multiple use equipment, multiple use infrastructure will be a theme throughout this little uh, talk. So, so the idea here is we're using simple infrastructure. So this is what I call the new information age infrastructure on our farms. As we move into this 21st century, what we're going to see is agriculture, what we're going to see is agriculture is going to have to become more nimble. If you're reading business books, you're reading IT books and information technology, you understand that we are moving into business structures that are more nimble, malleable, have lower overhead, lower depreciable infrastructure costs. I recognize that I can't mill the board feet that you can on a great big frick, you know, uh, um, regular mill. But I'm in, I'm in business for $7,000. So I don't have to mill very much to, to, to run the capital. Okay, I can easily mill a thousand board feet in a day, you know, worth a thousand dollars. Well, you can you can get in and out this way, all right. And uh, so we we can mill all of our own lumber. We sell lumber, 
and uh, sell it to the community. Uh, used to be grist mills on every corner. We think there ought to be these little sawmills on every corner. As far as I'm concerned, as a farmer, this is as valuable as a front-end loader because I'm completely lumber independent. So if I want to build a vacation cottage for people coming from Washington, D.C. to stay on my back 40, or I want to build a, a sugar shack, or I want to build a tiny house for a, a, an, an intern or two, or I want to build an addition on my own house, or uh, my kids want to come back to the farm and I need a place for them, or I need a shed for the equipment, or whatever, I can do it very cheaply because I'm lumber independent. Uh, tops, we stack up and we run them through our chipper. That's a, that chipper will take um, eight inch material, and that becomes the backbone for our carbonaceous diaper in the wintertime in the hay shed. All right, so in the wintertime, when the soil is dormant, the cows are dropping 50 pounds of goodies out their back end every day, okay? And they're not potty trained, okay? I haven't ever met anybody that could train, potty train a cow, all right? And that material out their back end, that 50 pounds, is highly soluble and volatile. If it gets dry, it vaporizes. And of course, the most expensive part is what? The nitrogen, right? And that has the, 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 the most vaporization capacity. And if it gets wet, it diffuses and goes into the groundwater because the soil is dormant during the wintertime. The, all the mycorrhizae, the gibberellins, the azotobacter, the, my, the, the, the mycelium, and all that is, is all sleeping when it's cold. And it's colder here than it is over where we are, okay? So what we do is make a very simple shed. Notice the simple poles here. This is basically just poles we didn't cut into firewood, turn them into rafters. You know, you don't need dressed lumber. You don't need, you know, uh, uh, half the world lives in houses not this good. So the cows don't need any house better than that. And, and so, um, so the cows are eating. We're using any kind of sawdust, wood chips, leaves, corn fodder, peanut hulls. I mean, whatever carbon you can get. But this is, this is, a carbon-centric farm. We're putting money in carbon. This is our ultimate carbon trade, okay? We understand that what feeds the soil biology, what builds organic matter in the soil, what builds soil resiliency, and remember, one pound of organic matter holds four pounds of water. So if you can increase your organic matter from 2% to 3%, you've just had an exponential increase in your water retentive capacity which means if you get a rainstorm, you collect more water, and if it gets dry, it takes a lot longer for you to get dry. When we came to our farm in 1961, our organic matter averaged 1% organic matter. The farm was burned out, row cropped out, it was overgrazed out, it was, it was junk. Today, we average over 8% organic matter, okay? Because this has been the fertility program. The carbonaceous diaper, and we're not organic. I mean, I'll get thrown in jail if I use the word organic because I haven't taken the government license to use the word. So we say we're beyond organic. Anyway, it's another discussion. Um, but anyway, these, these natural farmers, you know, uh, they just, you know, uh, the, the women don't shave her legs and the men just, you know, wear ponytails and run naked through the woods on moonlit nights, you know, and everybody just kind of sits back and woo, you know, just nature take its course. Well, if we're not going to use Ivamec, and the drugs, and all the things that make the meat so bad it kills the bugs, we have to have hygienic sanitary models in order to compensate. You can't just say no, you have to say yes to a few things. And so the clean box 
allows them to eat clean. So as this bedding builds up, so they're dropping 50 pounds of material out their back end every day. It's kind of goopy and sloshy, right? So we're adding more carbon every day. And as we add, we add, as we add this carbon, we add corn to it. Now the cows are tromping out the oxygen, so this deep bedding pack is anaerobic. It's like silage. In fact, it smells like silage. If you open it up, it smells like silage. It's fermenting, all right? And so, which means it never gets cold. So even when it's zero degrees outside and the ground is frozen to 12 inches, our cows are lounging on this nice 50-degree soft blanket that smells so good you could eat lunch in there. Okay. And, and so, I mean, 50 degree, it's not warm to the touch, but if you're sleeping, 50 degrees is a lot warmer than zero. So then, so then the cows don't have to ingest as much feed to keep their body temperature up. So you're not feeding as much hay. You're not, you know, all these things are happening. All right. So the, the, the corn then ferments in that bedding pack. So when the cows come back out to graze in the spring, we put in the piggerators. All right. Like this. Oh boy, the piggerator, all right? And this is piggerator, aerators, like, you know, aerobics, okay? And so the pigs then seek this fermented corn in the bedding pack. If you look real closely, you'll see a sign across the pig's forehead that says, we'll work for corn, all right? And these pigs then churn this up like a big egg beater and fluff it up and aerate it and turn it from anaerobic into aerobic compost without us having to do anything. Why does the average farmer not want to do large-scale composting? Materials handling, right? It's expensive. It's time-consuming. It takes a lot, of, a lot of energy. But if pigs do the work, we're using appreciating infrastructure to do the work. Why is it that farms have to get big in order to stay in business? Because we're in the materials handling business. And if the materials handling business is cheaper by the million, cheaper by the ton, then what you're looking for is to get bigger and bigger and bigger equipment and machinery in order to become more efficient because it's more efficient to move material with a three-yard bucket than a one-yard bucket. Because the big cost is the guy sitting on the seat, right? There's not that much difference between the cost of a 40-horsepower of a, of a tractor and an 80-horsepower tractor. All right. And so so the, the tendency is to, to get bigger and bigger and bigger infrastructure in order to become more efficient. But if our infrastructure does not depreciate. So we don't have to replace the things that rot, rust and depreciate. And we're using appreciating machinery. Suddenly, you ready for this? The profit potential is size neutral. Which means you can make just as much profit on two pigs as a thousand pigs. That's revolutionary in farming. Revolutionary. Because suddenly we're off of that treadmill of where we have to consistently capitalize all this depreciable infrastructure all the time. Now suddenly we can be a very profitable farm, but be small. The reason we do this is because manure is valuable. You know, I don't know what yours look like here, but that's what ours look like. I mean, we, I just, I, every time that cow takes a dump, I look at a dollar bill coming out, you know. And see, here's the problem. The problem is that all of us feel like, you know, we, we feel like we're victims of something. 
We're victims of price. We're victims of, of somebody else's better bull, better tractor, you know, the one that runs. If I just had that guy's, you know, intelligence or that guy's field or that guy's education or that guy's wife or, you know, whatever, right? We're, we're, we're always, right? We're, we're always thinking that somebody, it's, there's something that's eluding me. You know, it's out there somewhere. And what my message is, is that the gold mine is right here under our feet. The weak link is between our ears to think creatively. As my son Daniel says, he says, our problem is constipation of imagination. Okay? That's where we have our problem. And, and see, the, the problem is that when the only tool in our box is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And one of the things that I'm trying to do today is to put a, a, a you know, a wrench and a box inset and a, you know, a screwdriver and a Phillips head and some pliers and get some more tools in your box to help you to, to, to just to, to get some creativity. And so, uh, so we view this as our resource and the beauty is the IRS doesn't tax these. There's no place on an IRS form that says, how much, you know, compost did you make this year? Um, and so we can, you know, we can get as many of these as possible and nobody knows. And then that becomes our fertility program. So our fertility program is run carbon-centrically with our own resource base. All right? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't ever buy carbon, because we do buy carbon, but that's our fertilizer budget. We buy tractor-trailer loads of sawdust or bark mulch or, or, or whatever, you know, when, when the, a splendid utility rights-of-way crews come by, you know, they, um, they, they drop at our farm and we give them a dozen eggs or, I mean, you, whatever, okay? The point is we are carbon-centric. The fact is that if all the money right now in Virginia spent on chemical fertilizers that are petroleum-based, were instead spent on local carbon centricity to run our fertility programs. Not only would we see our organic matter go through the roof, not only would we see our productivity go through the roof, but it would be a landscape manicured stewardship program unlike anything we've ever seen. And it would create economic opportunity for a burgeoning generation of young people desperate to do something besides fight a, a, an expressway commute to sit in a Dilbert cubicle all day. So how did these, you know, if you're looking at sunbeams around the planet, um, the most efficient converter of sunbeams into biomass there's three kinds of vegetation, trees, woody species, brush, shrubs, and then grasses. And I'm lumping all the, the you know, clovers and legumes, all that together, all right, the grasses. So you got grasses, shrubs, and trees. Now, it's counterintuitive to realize that grass is the most efficient, efficacious converter of sunbeams into carbon. Because you look at the trees and you say, well, look at all that carbon. What do you mean? That, well, that is, that is uh, um, a, a summation of 50, 60 years of, of carbon growth. Are you with me? If you go out to a field, to a, to a productive grass, and you took 50 years worth of grass that was produced in that field and piled it all up in a pile, you'd have a great big pile. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. All right. So, so, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for this. I don't have time to go into all the, the deta details, but if you really want to grow soil and, and all of the, the planet's deepest soils are not under forests. 
They're under prairies. Because the herbivore and the forage are symbiotic. Here's how it works. Grass grows in a sigmoid curve, okay, an S-curve. I call this down here diaper grass, teenage grass, nursing home grass, okay? If my goal is to convert more sunbeams into biomass of those three stages, diaper, teenage, nursing home, where do I want the grass most of the time? Teenage, this is a rhetorical question. This is not up to debate, all right? You know, diapers seems to last forever. Are they ever going to get out of diapers? And, of course, nursing home, are they going to hang on forever? You know, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it's like two ends of the spectrum, right? And so, and so what we're looking for is that juvenile, that, that teenage growth. You know, some of you can remember back when you used to be able to eat a half a gallon of ice cream and it didn't stay on your hips, you know. Um, some of us, you know, we hit that 20-year mark and you become an easy keeper. That's me. I'd make a great brood cow for somebody. You know, you eat ragweed hay and stay slick and fat. That's me, you know, easy keeper. All right. So the deal is, the reason that the planet has all these herbivores on it is to prune that nursing home grass back to its teenage accelerating growth period as a biomass accumulation restart button. You know, we would think a viticulturalist is negligent if he didn't prune his vineyard for what does he do it? To destroy growth? No, to encourage fresh new growth. An orchardist, an apple tree, pruning an apple tree, same deal. Well, that's what the herbivore does to this S cycle, the biological cycle in grass growth. That's the reason for the herbivore. Here's the problem, though. Under continuous grazing, as soon as that grass gets long enough to nip off by the cow, it gets nipped off by the cow and never goes through its acceleration period. The, re the way this occurred in nature was with, was with migratory choreography, fire, and predators. Predators moved them on, and the fly cycle moved them on. Well, obviously, with property ownership today, fences and all that, we, we've broken up the migrant. We don't have the bison. We don't have the elk. We don't have the wolves. We don't have all this stuff. So how do we duplicate this 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 one day prune and then the move off like we saw with these and, and, and the mobbing and all this that we saw in nature. Well, we do it with electric fencing. Right, that is our ha-ha. That is our, 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 uh, our infrastructure that allows us to put a steering wheel, a brake, and an accelerator on that four-legged sauerkraut vat. Okay? To allow us to essentially steer those herbivores around the grasslands to be able to gauge the day, the 24-hour period in which the herbivore, the pruner, and the sunbeam solar collector, grass, are going to meet. That's what this is. And this, this has never been able to do, be done with as much precision as today. A hundred years ago, how would you do this? You couldn't. Okay? Today, with electric fencing, with portable electric fencing, where you can take a 200-acre farm and the entire fencing of the farm could go in a pickup truck, it can be done. So every day, every day, we're moving the herd to another paddock, roughly at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, every single day, moving them progressively from across the farm. Now, people say, well, that takes a lot of labor. Well, we figured up the increased production. Because remember, the key to this 
is two things. One is they're only on it for a day. But the second thing is they're off of it until it has gone through this blaze of growth curve. Well, what does that do for us? In Augusta County, the average cow days per acre, a cow day is what one cow will eat in a day. So what you're going to eat today is one person day of food for you. All right, with me? So a cow day is what one cow will eat in a day. In Augusta County, our average cow days per acre is 80. That's probably very close to what you have here. In other words, if you're going to run, you know, 50 cows, you're going to need 200 acres, roughly four, you know, four acres per, per head. 80 times 4 is 320. Not quite a year, but it's close enough for discussion. Are you with me? Okay. So in Augusta County, 80 cow days per acre. Dear folks, we average over 400 cow days per acre. That's better than one cow per acre. So you guys that have 500 acres and you're running 100 cows on it or 150 cows, what if you could run 500 cows? With no more equipment, no more anything. Would that change your economic picture? Yes. You know, when we talk about rural revitalization, we don't need Toyota plants and gimmicks and big, you know, box stores and distribution centers and all the things that, you know, governments give tax incentives to create agrarian rural development. All we need to do is access our own gold mine, okay? And what I'm describing here has nothing to do with marketing. This is just production, okay? So we can become a least cost producer. See, this is, this is uh, replacing mass with intelligence, all right? Um, the, the, the whole, the whole uh, information economy, as Kevin Kelly, the, uh, the um, editor of Wired magazine who wrote the book New Rules for the New Economy, how he points out that the, the new rules are everything is miniaturizing, restructuring, and downsizing. You know, the 120-pound secretary has been replaced by a four-ounce mail router. <laughs> Think how much your car knows today compared to a muscle car of the 1960s. That was a bunch of pig iron and, and big, you know, right? Today, even your cal- brake calipers have microchips in them to tell you when the brake calipers are wearing. Think of how much, but, but it weighs half as much. That's the idea here. More intelligence, less mass. Move them every three days right across the field. Again, we're grazing here, making hay here, running chickens here. Okay, so you're running multiple economic enterprises across the land base. And here's the infrastructure. This is it. Put in a wheelbarrow and you're done. Okay? And, and, and that, you know, it's not a building. There's no, there's no rules, no inspection. It's not a machine, so you don't have to record it for personal property tax. I mean, it's a nothing as far as the government's concerned. And I like that. Anything that's nothing as far as the government's concerned is good. Okay? Here's the deal, folks. This is, this is a completely different kind of farming because it makes the farm mobile. The big cost of getting into farming is the land, right? But if the farm business can be divorced from the land, now suddenly you have a way in that's low capital. See, the reason the average American farmer is 60 years old is because when young people can't get in, old people can't get out. Right? And so if you're going to have multi-generational fluidity and succession, you've got to have a way, a low capital way for young people that don't have any money, but have a lot of a lot of enthusiasm and energy 
to be able to leverage enthusiasm and energy onto an enterprise. And so a mobile farm allows a a young person to, to place a business on an existing piece of land that's not owned because if something goes south in the relationship or the, you know, whatever, they just pick up their farm and go down the road to another place. Okay? So having a portable farm is the ultimate nimbleness, which is the byword in, 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 in today's businesses. Okay? And so it's mobile. The second thing is it's modular. If you want to grow a chicken for Tyson's or Purdue or Cargill, the first thing you have to do is build a $300,000 facility, right? Or $400,000, however much it is, okay? But a very expensive facility, a very highly depreciable facility, okay? Here, if you want to start, you can start with one. Just don't go to the movies for a month. And you got the cash flow to start with one. If you like it, you retain some earnings and you build a second module. And you add modules. I mean... 30 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you if you said one day you'll have 150 of these. Well, we do, okay? But it's, but we can upscale and downscale. That makes it scale neutral. You can do this on a small acreage, a large acreage, as a small business, a big business, a backyard, a big farm. Doesn't matter because, listen to this, the equity is not in infrastructure. The equity is in management, information, and customers. That revolutionizes the equity, the financial picture of a farm. The average farm in America, it takes $4 worth of depreciable buildings and machinery to turn $1 in annual gross sales. $4 of depreciable machinery and buildings to turn $1 in annual gross sales. Our ratio is 50 cents to a dollar. I'm not bragging. I'm just explaining when you have modular infrastructure, mobile infrastructure, it completely changes these, these hurdle ratios that make it difficult for the two generations to be able to move between them. And finally, this is management intensive. And that's where it gets you, okay? It takes more labor. Oh, no. Well, we can't do that. You know, if it takes more labor, we got to get done with it. What I'm suggesting is, I think that there are thousands and thousands of young people who, if they really thought they could make a living on a farm, would flock to it tomorrow. But they've been told by guidance counselors, by family members, by their father farmers, there ain't no money in farming. Ain't no money in farming. Just a lot of work, a lot of dust. Nobody gives a lick. Those environmentalists are going to run us out of business. Right? You ever heard that? Absolutely. Right? It's a story of our time. So I don't, I don't apologize for replacing pharmaceuticals, chemical fertilizers, and depreciable infrastructure with management. I think that gives us a much better caress on the landscape to have more eyes and hands directly involved. You have a bad day sometimes. You know, things just don't work out. So I don't want anybody here thinking that I've got it all figured out. I learn something every single day. The day you quit learning, you might as well die, right? But I'm here to tell you that if you will continue to pursue the truth and pursue uh, these principles of, of, of community-centric, carbon-centric, local-centric, people-centric uh, type of systems, 
You will find those answers and that cornucopia will come your way. Yes, even in Highland County. And it will make the farm that will be people-centric and will be a place where a lot of excitement occurs. This is some of the intern housing uh, that we've built on farm, a big 15,000-gallon cistern. But at this stage of my life, to be surrounded by this kind of youthful energy is just, um, is just brings me to tears. And, it's, and I'm so thankful for it uh, because it makes the farm that the children will want. Ultimately, if we get enough people where they want to go, we'll go where we want to go. And that's the gold pot at the end of my rainbow. I don't know what your rainbow is today. I don't know what your, what your dream, your fantasy, you know, if time or money were not an issue, what would you do? You know, those great big uh, leadership type questions and business seminars and things. Take time to write it down. What is it? What drives you? And then make those action steps and pursue the truth and pursue a sacred calling and a ministry to make it happen in your life. You can do it. I have full confidence in you. You don't need outside consultants. You don't need a bunch of outside, you know, money or whatever. You need to just look inside, in the county. There's enough eclectic wisdom and creativity and innovation right here in this room. If you pulled off this building, you can certainly pull off saving agriculture and rural, true, um, nested, applicable, sacred development in Highland County. God help us to do it. Thank you for listening to the story. All right, so great talk from Joel there. Now, you're not going to be able to hear the questions from the Q&A following the talk, so we've cut some of that out, and I've highlighted a few of Joel's answers that are incredibly insightful and uh, actually just fascinating, and, and just it's content that I couldn't leave out that I really want you guys to hear. So uh, the first question you're going to hear is about regulations and, and some ways that um, the government is kind of oppressing or, or micromanaging uh, farmers, and you'll hear Joel provide a resource for uh, all farmers and all citizens to be able to have a little bit more control over the food that we choose to eat and grow ourselves. So check this out. I think this, this Q&A section here may even be the most fascinating section uh, of the entire day. Well, yeah, all, all government regulations favor, the, uh, favor the, the, the big players of the orthodoxy. I mean, that's, that's a given. Because it's, it's a political process, right? And, and so, so all regulations, by the time they actually get implemented, are always going to be hurtful to the small guy or the innovator. Usually the small guy is the innovator, and they're going to be concessionary toward the big player. That's true. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't plenty of wiggle room and opportunity for us small guys to, 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 find, to find places. And uh, so, you know, I tend to... Just, yeah, okay. Uh, first of all, thanks, Sherry, yes. Uh, first of all, let me encourage you, if you really want, you know, to be able to, ha to have the freedom uh, of getting the food of your choice from the source of its choice, I encourage everyone to join the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, F-T-C-L-D-F. Um, uh, it, it, it is, it, it has, it's a, 
It's an organization. It's like the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Uh, it provides real-time, 24-7 hotline service for if a bureaucrat is harassing you to get real-time legal counsel, gratis, if you're a member. And uh, so both consumers and farmers, I think consumers are 50 bucks a year, farmers are 125. Um, but, but, but the point is that you can call 24-7 and get real-time legal counsel for a question. They have been very instrumental in creating herd share agreements, for example, for raw milk, for, to be able to do raw milk sales through herd share. So you can call them and they'll send you, your, they'll send you a template, okay? Saves you having to do all the research. All right. Uh, and so I encourage you. I mean, that, that's the first like the first line of defense. Um, I call them the NRA of, of food freedom. Uh, and, and, and my dream is that someday they will be as powerful as the NRA. And I'm a card carrying NRA member, so I'm not impugning NRA. Uh, but I do think that we as a culture would be a much better culture if we were as interested in preserving uh, our freedom of food access as our freedom of gun access. I'll just make that point. Um, now, as far as like the poultry regulations, you have to realize that, that, um, that there are a lot of creative ways around a lot of the regulations. I mean, take chickens, right? I mean, I said our Ill little illegal thing. It's not illegal. Virginia has a, um, has the federal, uh, poultry PL9492 exemption that allows us to do 20,000 chickens a year uninspected on our farms, okay, that's called the, the producer-grower exemption. So that's what we're under. So um, we actually haven't had a visit from a bureaucrat in, I don't know, what, seven or eight years. It's been a long, long time. And, um, and they can come once a year. They can check our water, but they can't define what kind of infrastructure we have, okay? And so, um, so you know, that's, the, that's where you can go. And 20,000 chickens is a lot of chickens. All right. Uh, I actually had a wonderful visit from Senator Rand Paul, who is trying to take that federal 20,000 exemption and extend it to milk, beef, pork. OK. And um, so, you know, we'll see where that effort goes. But um, um, there, there are a lot of, of creative ways to move around the regulations. You got to realize that the federal courts of the U.S. have ruled in writing that you as a citizen do not have the right to the food of your choice, even if you grow it yourself. That's the official position of our country, okay? And so, um, now, it's all done for our protection, of course, you know, because your tomato might be bad, right? And we can't trust you to decide your tomato. And I wrote a book, Everything I Want to Do is Illegal, uh, documenting our run-ins with people. I mean, I've actually talked to the food police in Richmond and, and you know, had them tell me in, in writing, uh, we cannot trust citizens to make food choices. We have to make those choices for them. Well, guess, guess what the choices are that they make? It ain't outdoor chickens. Okay. I mean, I'm a bioterrorist according to the orthodoxy. All right. And so, and so what happens is when you get the government beginning to define what is safe and what is not, <laughs> there is a pretty straight orthodoxy kind of out of the mouthpiece of Monsanto that defines what safe is. And you see, safe is not an objective term. Do you ever think about that? I think people are unsafe all the time. 
I think when somebody goes in and gets a bag, gets a, a six pack of soda pop of Coke and feeds it to their five year old, that's unsafe. Okay. Safety is very, very subjective. Some people think that letting kids climb a tree is unsafe. Some people think bungee jumping is unsafe. Some people think, you know, going to college is safe. <laughs> Maybe it's not very safe. Okay. Because your mind might get scrambled. Okay, by some stupid professor. Anyway, the, the point is, safety is a very, very subjective thing. Are you with me? And so when we as a society decide to give to the orthodoxy, the government, the industrial food system, the, the, the right to define for us what is safe, it is going to limit us to whatever the orthodoxy believes is safe. And that's an extremely limited orthodoxy, like no raw milk. You've got to vaccinate your kids. You got to give your, you know, your, your, your infant, uh, uh, you know, a, a sex disease pill. You, you name your thing, right? And, and I'm not saying any of that's wrong or bad. If you want to do that, that's fine. The ultimate, I'll finish with this, and I know it's about time to lunch, right? Okay, here's the deal. The Romans had an axiom. Romans had an axiom that you could tell the strength of a civilization by the number of laws that it had. The stronger a civilization, the fewer laws that it had. Why? Because if there's some lunatic fringe weirdos around the edges, who cares? We're strong, we're virulent. Who cares about the weirdos? It's when a civilization becomes vapid, timid, paranoid, fearful, and weak that we begin fearing those innovators out there lurking around in weirdo land because that's where all innovation comes from, okay? It's out there in the, in the weirdos, all right? The lunatic fringe is called in business circles. And so if we're going to preserve innovation, we have to preserve commercial access among consenting adults to participate in things that some other people might think is unsafe. See, I really believe that if we actually threw the gates open and let somebody make home-based cheese and charcuterie and backyard slaughtered pigs and, and, and pond hoss and, you know, the, I really think we'd have a healthier population. But see, we can't even try it because it's illegal, according to the federal government. And so that's why I'm a small federal government guy, because ultimately, if we're going to have innovation in the civilization, we have to have more rights at the local level so that Monterey can try one thing, and McDowell can try one thing, and Stanton can try one thing. We all, well, that's working over there. Well, that's not working over there. We don't want to do that. Ooh, that's, they got a great idea over there. That's working. And, 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 we can, and think of the, the amount of innovation we can have if we would take all that control away from the federal government where it's a one-size-fits-all and allow states and localities to actually experiment with things, both governmentally, food, zoning, you know, all sorts of things. And, and some would fail and some would really, you know, go well. But that's all a part of learning in this, in this great, you know, soup of, of, of communal um, learning that, that we're in. 
So uh, that's where I am on, on the food. And that's why, that's why I'm a big believer in the farm to consumer and what they're trying to do to preserve the food of your choice from the source of its choice. Thank you. All right, Joel, before we let you go, same question that all of our guests answer. We want to know your top three tips to live optimal. Three things. One is, the first thing is get in your kitchen. I mean, the number one thing that you can do to take the power out of the orthodox food system, orthodox uh, industrial food system, is to get in your kitchen. I mean, a lot of the problems we have are processed food. Um, and, and, you know, Michael Pollan talks about shopping the outside of the supermarket. But, but all this comes when you get unprocessed. A, you get a lot cheaper stuff. Um, but two, you interact with it you know, in your own kitchen. So ultimately, you cannot have a food system with integrity until it's ultimately home-centric. It has to be home. So get in your kitchen and, and enjoy that. Number two is do something yourself. Um, maybe it's, it's nothing more than a, than a little a ver vermicomposting bin under your sink with some worms, you know, and you dump your kitchen scraps in some worms. But, uh, or maybe it's a, you know, it, it's a stackable uh, pot garden, you know, on your patio. Um, but, but do something yourself, just to participate in this. And the third thing is, uh, I always tell people, uh, take one year and take all of your recreational and entertainment budget of time and money and go find your local food treasures. Every community now is surrounded by really great soil building, aquifer encouraging, you know, air cleaning farms. Find them. Patronize them. Many of them are literally six customers away from a, being able to leave their town job and be on the farm full time. You can be the person to, to make that tipping point occur in their life and enable them to supply better for your community. So really just focusing on what you can do doing your part and if everybody did that, like you said. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Get in your kitchen. Do something for yourself, and then you know, uh, um, take your recreational entertainment budget for one year, find your food treasures, and you're up and running. I love it. I love it. Now you mentioned Michael Pollan. I think that was really interesting. I just learned today. It's been a week with us okay. while, while he was developing the Omnivore's Dilemma book. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Well, he, he, it was an interesting thing. See, he was doing this uh, Power Steer article for the New York Times Magazine. And he called us and wanted us to ship up a, a T-bone or a, a steak for him. I said, no, we don't ship. He said, oh, well, I'll give you my FedEx number. I said, no, no, you don't understand. We don't ship. And at first he was offended. You know, I'll dare this, you know, Virginia pipsqueak farmer. You know, I'm a New York Times journalist. You know, what do you mean? And then he was intrigued. And he said, well, this guy is really serious, you know. So he came down to visit us. And once he visited, he realized we were not organic. We were not industrial. We were not hunter-gatherer. We were, you know, something different. And that started the seed in his mind of this whole grass pasture, you know, idea. Okay. I didn't know that he spent time there. That's really yeah, yeah, he spent a whole week with us, and we we're good friends. We keep up with each other pretty pretty closely. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the OPP, please share it with someone you know who will benefit from and enjoy the things we're talking about. 
Also, give us your feedback. We're interested to know what you thought about this episode. I've realized this is something different. It was a great opportunity for us to um, rub elbows with somebody who is moving and changing um, the the space that we're in. Uh, we wanted to be able to bring you that kind of um talk and and information. So uh, if you like this, if you want more on-site stuff like this, let us know. We'll do our best to get more of those. Head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Let us know how much you like the OPP. Like we've said a couple of times throughout the show, links to all of these resources are going to be at naturalstacks.com with the blog post for this, the Eager Farmer stuff, the Thrive Market, uh, Polyface Farms. We'll also have the download link to the entire audio from Joel's speech. We'll talk to you guys next Thursday. Thanks for listening to the OPP. Natural Stack. Start optimizing your mental and physical performance. Optimize yourself.